Good evening. Hope you're excited to jump into the Word of God and see what He has to say through the prophet of Ezekiel tonight in chapter 29. It's really a pretty interesting passage. Let me try to go on and just give you some context, give you the setting so that uh, you have the building blocks and the tools I think that are necessary to really kind of get a picture of what we are going to be reading about here in chapter 29. Now, in context today, we will need to keep three nations in mind. Babylon, Judah, specifically the city of Jerusalem, and Egypt. So you got Babylon, Judah, Egypt. Egypt is going to be the subject over the next four chapters in Ezekiel. But Babylon has come onto the world scene. They're the new world superpower, and they're establishing their power, their their dominance over nation after nation after nation. They're setting up kings. They're charging tribute, charging taxes. They're, they're, they're king over all these nations. And Judah is one of these nations. Judah, Judah had made a covenant with Babylon, we're told. And as long as Judah kept its end of the bargain, Babylon allowed them to stay in their land and allowed them to maintain their worship, their own worship. Yet Scripture informs us that King Jehoiakim rebelled and Babylon came and attacked the city. He took many of the residents, many of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, he took them away captive. That included Ezekiel, along with Jehoiakim's son Jehoiachin. But, and he set up yet another king in his place to exact taxes, to swear allegiance to Babylon, and this is a man by the name of King Zedekiah. Okay, so in the background of all this, we read about nations that are working together. They're forming alliances, and really to trying to stop or to limit Babylon's expansion. Egypt very well may have been the ringleader in this. And Egypt had encouraged Judah to rebel against Babylon, swearing their allegiance to them, Egypt, instead. And this political shift will prove disastrous. And it wasn't done without warning. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel all warned Judah not to rebel against the king of Babylon, not to seek safety in the arms of Egypt. We're even told that in Ezekiel. You could just flip back to chapter 17. We're told there, chapter 17, verse 15. But he, that's going to be Zedekiah, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? So he had broken a covenant he had made with Babylon. It goes on in Ezekiel 17, verse 17. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, will not help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls are built to cut off many lives, don't trust Egypt. Isaiah 36, verse 6. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff 
which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all who trust in him. So these empty promises of Egypt were par for the course. I guess it's to be fair, the same could be said about Judah, who made a covenant with Babylon, only to walk it back. Isaiah 30, verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter of the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. He goes on, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. They were warned. Isaiah's on the scenes a hundred years before this. They were warned not to run to Egypt. It goes on, Isaiah 31. This is things that they would have known at this time in Ezekiel 29 is why I'm bringing up this. 31 verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because there are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back His words, but He will rise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble. And he who is helped will fail, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a, a band of sheep is called out against, he is not terrified, their shouting and daunting of the noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on his hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Look, their answer the whole time was in Yahweh's, in the arms of Yahweh, not in Egypt. The clear warning not to trust in the safety of Egypt, rather to trust in the arms of Yahweh. But they chose the message of the false prophets. They chose the empty promises of Egypt. And we're even told that it does appear to work for a period of time. I'm going to read you the historical account, then I'll give you what Scripture says about it. historical account says, the, the Pharaoh we're going to be reading about is Pharaoh Hophra. H-O-P-H-R-A. Hophra. Hophra's army marched east to Zedekiah's aid. You know, they had made an alliance with Zedekiah of Judah. So Pharaoh marched east out there. Nebuchadnezzar withdrew from attacking Jerusalem to confront the Egyptian threat. The Babylonian forces withdrew so quickly from Jerusalem and sped westward so fast into the plains that their march was so swift and their front was so intimidating that Pharaoh Hophra, with the limited number of troops that he brought, he didn't see the opportunity to 
realistic chance of overcoming the enemy in an open battle. So the Egyptians withdrew. So they go, they're going to draw up to, you know, make good on their end of the bargain. And you see Babylon withdraws from Judah and confronts this Egyptian front. And when the Egyptian Pharaoh sees how swiftly they come out to fight, they turn tail and run. So when they leave, the people of Jerusalem, they feel a little bit of reprieve. You know, like a, ah, yes, this was the right choice. But Jeremiah is saying the whole time, Jeremiah 37 verse 5, the army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt. And when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. And even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn the city with fire. So simply because you've devised this plan in your own heart, and it seems to be working, it's giving you that flicker of hope, God's Word is to be trusted over any temporary measure of success. That's something we must keep in mind. So the setting throughout all this is Babylon is expanding its empire. Egypt is falsely promising support to Judah if she would just break away from Babylon. This new alliance is going to show a little bit of promise early on, but it's short-lived. And now Jerusalem is going to find herself back under attack with no help on the way. Which lamentations... clearly reveals this. Limitations 4, verse 17. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save. So he sat there, besieged. When the Chaldeans came back, besieged, waiting on Egypt to help. And they died waiting on Egypt to help. They were instructed not to trust in Egypt. And you may say, well, I thought this chapter was about Egypt. And here you are telling us all the, the wrongs of, of Jerusalem. Look, Israel's sin was to run to Egypt for support. Egypt's sin was to falsely promise support. Although God never determined or never desired for Judah to seek refuge in Egypt, the Lord will not allow the empty promises from Egypt to slide. We will see this today in Ezekiel 29. I guess if I titled it, it would just be The Judgment of Egypt. Real clever. Ezekiel 29, verse 1. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. But we'll just pause right there for a minute. It says here clearly in verse 1 that we are in the 10th year. And I know y'all are getting this weeks at a time, and I've been in it 
for several days now. But I want you to remember, back in 24, we're in the ninth year. Chapter 24, it's in the ninth year that the king of Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem. Now, according to chapter 33, it's in the twelfth year that a fugitive from Jerusalem came and said, The city has been struck down. The city has fallen. So the ninth year, Jeremiah, I mean, the ninth year, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem. Twelfth year, he had sacked it. We're in the tenth year. Are you with me? Now, this timeline uh, really aligns well with Egypt advancing only showing support temporarily only to retreat and to leave Jerusalem without existence. And God is none too pleased. And I think that's why He says in verse 2, Set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and against all Egypt. Then he goes on, 3 through 5. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the streams, that says, My Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make your fish, or make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. And I will draw you up out of the midst of the streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. I will cast you out into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall in the open field and not be brought together or gathered. To the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens I give you as food. So this great dragon, Pharaoh's here is going to be referred to poetically as like a, a great dragon. A great monster as some translations Say This likely refers to a crocodile. You know, crocodiles were abundant in the Nile, and they are great monsters. They are great dragon. Warren Wiersbe says, quote, Pharaoh was compared to a ferocious crocodile guarding the waters of the land, the Nile, and all its canals, and attacking anybody who dared to challenge his claims, end quote. And we see... Just right on reading this, we get the picture, and then we see this sin of pride pop out of here so clear. My Nile, talking about the river, is my own, and I've made it for myself. Pharaoh, unlike many of the kings, Caesars, emperors of their day, they did consider themselves deity. They considered themselves many gods. Charles Feinberg actually says, quote this, when he says, The Nile is my own, I've made it for myself. He says, actually, instead of him making the river, the river made him. For without it, the land would have been a desert. End quote. The Nile is my own. I've made it for myself. That is so reminiscent to me of, of Nebuchadnezzar as he says that about Babylon. This is not great Babylon that I have built by my mighty hand for my royal Majesty. And if you've noticed this thinking back on Tyre and all the nations that God has pronounced judgment on, pride is at the heart of every nation that God judges. Then he says, The fish of your streams, they stick to your scales. This is reference to the Egyptians or his constituents. The, just the, 
you know, the inhabitants of Egypt, as that's what's being referred to as these fish. And he says, I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams. Again, remember, this is that Pharaoh Hophra. We know this from Jeremiah 44. What, what happens here is Pharaoh will be drawn out of Egypt into battle, not against, not against the Chaldeans. He will be drawn up out of the river, out and into battle. He will go to battle against a, a, a nation called Cyrene. He suffers a defeat. A coup is initiated, and the Pharaoh dies at the hands of his own people. And if you've watched hardly any history, you know that the Pharaohs were notorious for the care and detail that they put, like, put, they put into their burial. You know, this is seen today in the pyramids. They, they took great care in, you know, their burial and the afterlife and things like that. And this, here we go, this God, Pharaoh Hophra, is going to die in the open field. There is no elaborate burial. It says he is not brought together, he is not gathered, and his body will be food for the birds. Then we're given in 6 through 9 what I think is reason two for why this judgment is coming. 6 through 9. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they grasp you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins to shake. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring a sword upon you. I will cut off from you man and beast, and the land of Egypt shall be a desolate and a waste, a desolation and a waste. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. We're told here, reason number two, is that Egypt has been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. A staff was typically made of wood, something with some strength. But Egypt is compared to a staff of reed. A reed belongs to the grass family. You may picture a, a cattail. You know, if you know what a cattail is that grows in marshy grounds or, or maybe bulrush. It may have the appearance of providing support, but it doesn't support and it can't support. And it says here that they are just a, a staff of reed, unable to provide any support to the people of Israel. And when they grasp you with a hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and made their loins to shake. Uh, all I can picture is if you've ever uh, been walking down the steps, possibly, and you think there's one more step there, and it's not, you know how you just, it just seems like it just throws everything out of joint. That's what it is. They, they leaned and it's just not there. There's nothing there. Then verses 8 and 9, it seems like the charges are brought. And, and to me, they're indicated with this language that says, because you have said. Verse 6, because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. That's why he's going to judge them. Or we see down here in verse 9, because you said the Nile is mine and I made it. Those are two of the charges that the Lord has, has brought up against Pharaoh in Egypt. The sentence is passed and we're told in verse 10, Therefore, behold, I am against you. 
and against your streams, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation from Migdal to Syene, as far as the border of Cush. From Migdal to Syene uh, is really from the northernmost city to the southernmost city. It's uh, comparable to the, the language where we say from Dan to Beersheba, from the northernmost part of Israel to the southernmost part of Israel. You may hear today from California to Maine, same thing. All of Israel is what he's talking about. From Migdal to Cyrene will be utter waste and desolation. Verse 11 through and 12, no foot of man shall pass through it. No foot of beast shall pass through it. It shall be uninhabited 40 years. And I will make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolate countries. And her cities shall be a desolation 40 years among cities that are laid waste. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the countries. It is pretty clear here, you know, what they're going to be a desolation. They're going to be an utter waste. And it's pretty clear that he says they shall be uninhabited 40 years. We're told in verse 12 why it would be uninhabited 40 years is because he's going to scatter the Egyptians among the nations. He's going to disperse them among the countries. There's a Babylonian historian by the name of Beresus. I guess in the similar we would have uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, the Babylonian historian we have here is Beresus. And he states that Nebuchadnezzar, after he had conquered Egypt, took a great number of the captives of Babylon. Others undoubtedly had fled to areas in similar cases like Libya or other nations along those lines. But it's indeed that Nebuchadnezzar did draw up against Egypt, did conquer Egypt, and took captives. Which seems to be what the Lord says when He says, I will scatter them among the nations. They will be uninhabited for 40 years. Now, archaeological evidence is silent on this matter. But Charles Dyer says this, and I'll quote, No archaeological finding has yet confirmed an Egyptian deportation similar to the one experienced by Israel. We don't have any archaeological evidence that can prove this. However, it is unwise to dismiss a clear statement of Scripture on the basis of incomplete archaeological data. End quote. What he's saying is trust the Scripture. and We trust the Scripture in matters like this. And look, it is an absolute fact that Nebuchadnezzar t- attacked Egypt. We know this as a fact that he subdued Egypt. We know this. So is it really inconceivable to think that the Egyptians, that he took any Egyptians captive? I think that's just, I think that's a real, it's pretty easy to surmise that, right? Like he had done with every other nation. But you may ask, why the silence? Well, look, it was common practice For pharaohs who did think themselves to be gods, they would omit, not admit, they would omit any defeats. Look, there's not an Egyptian record of the Exodus. And we know clearly that happened. John MacArthur, in his introduction to the book of Exodus, says this, The absence of any Egyptian record of the devastation of Egypt 
by the ten plagues and the major defeat of Pharaoh's elite army at the Red Sea should not give us rise to speculation on whether the account is historically authentic. Egyptian history did not permit records of their Pharaoh's embarrassments and defeats to be published. End quote. There's no record of the Exodus. Do you doubt that? No. We believe it wholeheartedly. And yet there's no record of Egyptians being carried into Babylonian exile, but we can have confidence that that's historically accurate as well because God's Word says it is right here. Look, there's nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says. And today, politicians who control the media really only tell you what they want you to know as well. So it's really no different. And just how much easier would controlling the media have been for an absolute monarch with no social media and a vast majority of their citizens were illiterate? It's easy to paint the picture that they wanted. And so they just would omit any defeats, any shortcomings of Pharaoh because after all, he was God. Let's move on to 13 through 16. For thus says the Lord God, At the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the people among who are there scattered. And I will restore the fortunes of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Pathros, the land of their origin. And there they shall be a lowly kingdom. It shall never be the most lowly... It shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms. It shall never again exalt itself above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations. And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel, recalling their iniquity when they turn to them for aid. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. Look, in verse 11, we just got through reading this. It said that Egypt would be uninhabited 40 years. And here we read... Re- re- <laughs> Here we read why, did I say that again? Here we read why the desolation will, will last 40 years or will end in 40 years. It's because the Lord is going to bring them back. The Lord will restore the people. I will gather the Egyptians from the people among whom they are scattered. I will restore the fortunes of Egypt. The Lord is going to bring them back. The Lord is going to restore their fortunes. That's very clear. However, they will never rise to the heights of their previous power and influence. They will never arise back to that level. And this has historically been the nation of Egypt, even in our day. Even in our day. They're a nation, a lot of land mass, lots of riches, but they just have no power to speak of and no real influence. And it says that they shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel. Israel will never again look to Egypt because of its weakened state. What help would they be? The Lord has kneecapped them, so to speak. They will never be powerful enough to come to the aid of Israel. And then it says, recalling their iniquity. And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel because of their size and their, their lowly state, recalling their iniquity. So when Israel sees the lowly state of Egypt, it will bring to mind 
their sin of trusting in man rather than God. That's what it should bring to mind for the Israelite. When they look at that lowly state of Egypt. Then let's move on to verses 17 through 20. In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bare and every shoulder was rubbed bare. Yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off his wealth and despoil it and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army. I've given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored because they worked for me, declares the Lord God. Okay, it says plainly in verse 17, in the 27th year. So, God fulfilled His promise in the 27th year that Egypt would fall. The promise He made up in verse 1, where it says in the 10th year. This would be accomplished here, we know, by the hand of the Babylonians. We're told who's going to do this. So, you may be asking these questions. Why would Ezekiel stick something that happened on the 27th year here. He starts in verse 1 in the 10th year. Then we read, once we get on down to verse 17, the 27th year. And then when we move on, you know, we go back, you know, we backtrack a little bit. We're, we're the 12th year when we get to chapter 33. Well, I think it's really pretty easy. I think it's just a, you know, a style of Ezekiel. Uh, you know, the Lord had pronounced judgment. He had announced certain destruction. So Ezekiel is going to place this here so the reader knows who brought about this destruction. And the answer is Babylon. He knows when it was brought about in the 27th year. Although chronologically it's out of order, Ezekiel deals with the prophecy concerning Egypt as a unit. He stacked it all right here for us, so we're not reading about it later on. He keeps the prophecies tightly knit together. And I really like that. I think that's, he deals with Tyre. The, the prophecies and the judgment. He deals with Egypt, the prophecies and the judgment and the fulfillment of it. And then he just moves right back on. But here it says in the 27th year. So some of you may want to take out a pen. Some of you may not. Some of you may have a mind like a steel trap, they say. But it says here in verse 17, in the 27th year. So let's just do some math and see how all this works. When did Jerusalem fall? According to Ezekiel's timeline, Ezekiel, um, Jerusalem fell, according to Ezekiel, in the twelfth year. Okay, so after Babylon sacked Jerusalem, they marched north to Tyre. We've been reading about this. Alright, the Chaldean army besieged Tyre for how long? Thirteen years. Thirteen years. They destroyed the mainland, but they never really took the capital island city. So 12th year, Jerusalem is destroyed. 13 year siege up in Tyre. You know, maybe a little mobilization here and there. You know, put you 25, 26 years. So this 27th year that he's talking about lines up beautifully with, with a, a timeline of what we're reading here. God fulfilled His promise that Egypt would fall. We see exactly what happened. They sacked Jerusalem. 
They head off to Tyre. They besiege Tyre for 13 years. Maybe some concessions are made, and then he marches down to take Egypt. One, as his wages for laboring against Tyre, and two, because the Lord had pronounced judgment on Egypt for their lack of support and false promises that they had made to Jerusalem. So this is going to be accomplished by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And not only this, the Egyptian plunder would be his wages for his work. As it says in verse 20, because they worked for me. That is a sovereign, sovereign God. As he has Nebuchadnezzar who is making all his own decisions, going about this whole thing on his own, not seeking the counsel of Yahweh throughout any of this, and yet he's stepping every step of the way, just as the Lord would have him move. The heart of a king is like waters in the hand of the Lord, it says. So, let's look at these dates one more time. Okay, hope I can get this one out. Ezekiel was carried captive in the second wave. Remember that? You know the Jehoiakim, you know, he, he kind of rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar came and, and sacked him, or came and you know, come, drew up against them, took a, a second wave of captives and put Zedekiah in his place. The first wave, including Daniel, was carried away about eight years prior, give or take eight years prior. And Ezekiel has been dating this book. As he goes, the dating really seems to follow his years in exile. It's really referring to Jehoiachin's years in exile, but he was carried along the same time, so Jehoiachin's Years in exile is the same as Zedekiah. I mean, is the same as Ezekiel's years in exile. Okay, so when we get here, chapter seven, verse seventeen, we're told in the twenty seventh year. So Ezekiel has been in Babylon twenty seven years. Daniel has been in Babylon thirty five years, give or take. Are we with me? So the people of Israel have already been in Babylon for about thirty to thirty five years. How long would they be in Babylon? Seventy years. Right? Jeremiah says that. Daniel repeats it. So after 70 years, Babylon is going to fall to the Persians. Okay? And King Cyrus of the Persian is going to allow the Jewish exiles to return back to their homeland. And this release from Babylon to their homeland will happen about 40 years after Verse 17, about 40 years after the destruction of Egypt. So when Babylon conquers Egypt, try to stay with me here, taking these Egyptian captives back into Babylon, 40 years after the Egyptians were scattered, they're going to be released by King Cyrus. They're going to go back to their homeland. What did the Lord say in verse 13? At the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the people. From where, they, from where they were scattered, and he would bring them back to the land. That's, that is exactly what happened. They, they've been in the land. The people of Israel have been in the land of Babylon 30 years. Babylon goes and they take Egypt, dragging along these Egyptian captives. Forty years later, Babylon's no more. Persian's the new superpower. The king of Persia, Cyrus, releases the Israelites, and I think it's fair to presume that he allowed the Egyptians to return as well. So when did this happen? 
40 years after their captivity, 40 years after the Lord sent them into Babylon, just like he said right here. I say that because I think that's what we're reading. We're reading about the 70 years of Babylon and Babylon's downfall and Persia's rise to power and them sending these captives back. I don't think this 40 years that we read about here is, is some kind of a, a allegory for us. There are 40 years of wilderness wanderings. It's nothing like that. I think it's... it's it's a literal 40 years. The people of Israel were carried, the people of Egypt were carried captive for 40 years, and they will return after 40 years, just like the Lord had said they would. So let's read verse 21, and we'll try to close with a, a few thoughts. Verse 21 says, And on that day I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them, then they shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, this, this, this can go a bunch of different ways. But the phrase, to me, the phrase where it says, I will open your lips among them, is referring to Ezekiel. So that inclines me to believe this is something that is going to happen in Ezekiel's day. The day Nebuchadnezzar conquered Egypt. The day Nebuchadnezzar brought those Egyptian captives into Babylon. The day he smashed Israel's dependence on that feeble nation. Okay, so if that's the day we're reading about, what does it mean when it says, I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel? Some take this to mean Daniel. You know, Egypt is going down in power, will never rise again. Israel, on the other hand, will arise again. And some are saying this is referring to Daniel as, as Nebuchadnezzar is showing favor to Daniel. And Daniel has a lot of political power in Babylon at this time. Maybe that's it. Or maybe, maybe this is it. Because I do think it, it, it quite possibly could be Messianic. The Messianic king would come through David in the kingly line of David. But with the execution of King Zedekiah, perhaps many were concerned with the actual fulfillment of that prophecy. But God is raising up a horn for the house of Israel. He's going to do this through David's son, Nathan. Maybe this is what's being said. That Don't think that, that the David's son, the promised son of David, is, that promise is, is now void. I'm still going to raise up a horn for the house of Israel. And it's going to come through David's son, but yet through Nathan, not Solomon. Maybe that's what he means. So, a lot of history. I hope you got it. I hope uh, maybe you could wrap your mind around this. So, some closing thoughts on this would be, to me, this is just an open and shut case, yet again, for the veracity of Scripture. How much we should trust the Scripture, even when the archaeological evidence doesn't line up with it, because it's been true at every step of the way. Trust the Scriptures. Trust the Scriptures. Lean on the Scriptures. Point two, I think it's odd that Abraham, Isaac, they all really seem to run to Egypt for deliverance. You know, every time, they just seem to go right back. Even after the cruel punishment during the 400 years of slavery, many desired to return to Egypt. They want to go back. They form a little coalition. Let's go. Let's return. We had pots of meat in Egypt. And here in Ezekiel's day, 
They would rather place their hope in the empty promises of Egypt rather than trusting in the Lord. It just seems to be a pattern. But do we not mirror this ourselves? Do we not habitually run back to the same futile things that consistently let us down? Why do we place our trust in the perishable safeguard? You know, we need to, we need to, trust, we need to trust in the Lord. Not, not the things that... Not, don't be like the Israelites here that are just trusting in the empty promises and smoke show of, of Egypt. But we do. We, we do a lot like the Israelites. We trust what we see. Even when we know it will fail us. I don't know why this lesson is so hard to learn. But it's simply we need to trust the Lord at all times. Well, when you look at Egypt today, and you compare it with the heights of power that we read about in the days of Joseph, do you recall the sin of trusting in man? Much like the Lord is saying here, that God had kneecapped Egypt so they would no longer be a source of protection for His people. When you look at Egypt, this is what's new to me. When you look at Egypt and you see from where they came from and where they are, they're still there. They've been there for millennia. But they just never bounce back. They, they just don't have that prominence that they once had. Why is that? Because the Lord had put a ceiling on them, so to speak. They would be back, but they would be a lowly kingdom. No one would tr- Israel would no longer trust in them because of their strength. And when you look at their weakened state, you should... It should trigger your mind. That's a direct result of trusting in man rather than trusting in God. Because that's exactly how we ended here. Look, we don't have to be Israelites to observe and learn from this object lesson. Israel's sin was to trust in Egypt. Egypt's sin was to mislead and to make null their promises to Israel. And this is a scary place for any nation, really. Israel should trust in Yahweh, not the U.S. of A. But if this country pledges assistance to Israel in their time of need, I pray we never walk away from those promises. Or we will find ourselves exactly where the people of Egypt are, as just a broken reed. Nothing they could really rely on. Look, nationally, we'd have very little say in this matter. But personally, maybe, we need, to, we need to keep the promises that we make to others. The Lord takes that serious. We need to keep the promise we make to others, even when it comes at a sacrifice. One of the reasons Egypt wasn't willing to, to go the full way, the whole nine yards, was because it was going to cost them something. They saw how quickly Babylon you know, jumped away from Jerusalem and was ready to fight. And they said, I don't think so. So they backed away, didn't support Israel in the way that they had promised, and God was judging them. He was judging Israel. He's judging Egypt. He's given, in the judgment of Egypt, He's given it to Babylon for their wages against Tyre. There's just a lot of moving pieces in this thing, and I just found it fascinating how our, law, how our Lord just consistently works all this out. So I pray I didn't lose you. If you have questions, I'll catch me after church, but uh, better catch me tonight. I won't remember this tomorrow. So if you would, please stand.